Welcome to the Social Flight Live podcast, an audio version of our live show, hosted every Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern at socialflightlive.com. Social Flight is brought to you by Aspen Avionics, Avidyne, Bose Aviation, Continental Aerospace Technologies, Lightspeed Aviation, Massimo Mighty Sat, Tempest Aero Group, and Whip Air. And now, here's your host, Jeff Simon. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Social Flight Live. I'm Jeff Simon. We have a fantastic show for you this evening. I am so, so excited uh, by this. Kurt Robinson, president and chairman of Robinson Helicopter, is here, and we are kicking off a special vertical series of shows here on Social Flight Live. The end of the show will tell you where we're going from here, but uh, it is just a ton and a ton of fun. I'd like to get started with a few uh, things. First of all, uh, as many of you know, we were off last week and uh, we were off taking a trip, went down to uh, Jamaica for some tourism. And I always like to include general aviation when I do that. Anything that can be done there to, uh, to, to fly, especially in other countries and explore that. And so I'm going to share a couple quick pictures here for you and hopefully encourage you to do the same. We uh, hooked up with the folks at Airlink Express. Now, um, if you fly into Jamaica, one of the challenges there is uh, you land at the main airport at Montego Bay, and it's such a gorgeous, gorgeous country, amazing culture, and yet the ground transportation is very challenging, but the air transportation through uh, Airlink Express is so cool. So um, we were able to uh, meet up with them, uh, we, uh, we flew in their aircraft, and you can kind of see here how we were able to go up and, uh, and, and get a tour and travel around uh, where we went to Negril. It's, it's so, so gorgeous there, and uh, it just transforms the experience. Um, the difference between doing this uh, in this manner and flying with the folks at Airlink Express versus uh, getting in, in car transportation was literally like two and a half hours of bumpy road and traffic versus uh, taking like 15, 20 minutes, 30 minutes of just touring the island and then getting to where you need to go. It was absolutely fantastic. And so I just want to do a shout out to them from the Rampant Custom Service Agent, uh, Leon Smith, our pilot, David Cadigan, who is absolutely fantastic. And, and thanks to owner and pilot, uh, Howard Levy, uh, who's just uh, fantastic, um, just just really great, and none of it would have come together without the uh, the woman behind the scenes, uh, Lisa Jerry. And so, um, just a thanks and encouragement to everyone. When you travel, um, try to indulge in some general aviation when you get out there. Try to experience what else is going on, and and, and share and support everything. And that is directly connected to tonight's guest, because of course. Um, when you uh, go places, you can always tour by helicopter, and most of the helicopters that are going to be there are going to be Robinsons. So let's get started. First of all, tonight's broadcast is brought to us by Lightspeed and the amazing Delta Zulu headset with Canary Carbon Monoxide Smart Alert technology and their hearing acuity, uh, delivering crystal clear flight communication tailored to your individual profile. 
it's just, if you have not tried the Delta Zulu headset, you need to get out there and try that. It's a safety wearable, it's a great item to have. Um, and, and it's just so clear and crisp once you've tailored it to your own hearing. And it's the prize that we do in our Fly to Win Challenge. We just gave away one. We're going to announce the winner at our next show. And uh, now, on April 1st, we're giving away another Delta Zulu. So all you need to do is get the Social Flight mobile app for Apple and Android devices. There are tens of thousands of aviation events and destinations. And uh, you're entered in the challenge by checking in to just one place. Now, to tonight's show. The Robinson Helicopter Company was founded in 1973 by Frank Robinson, whose vision was to produce the world's highest quality, most reliable helicopters in the most efficient and cost-effective way possible. And that is the key there, efficiency and cost-effectiveness, because that is not a hallmark of helicopters of the past. Uh, tonight's guest, Kurt Robinson, has continued his father's tradition, building the company into one of the most iconic brands in aviation. Combined, the, the two-seat R-22, the four-seat piston R-44, and the five-seat turbine R-66 account for over 13,000 helicopters worldwide. While nearly everyone's familiar with the classic lines of a Robbie on the field, um, fewer also know that the company is also dedicated to research and development and cutting-edge technology, including an autopilot designed specifically for helicopters. So I'm going to bring Kurt on the line now, and please help me welcome to Social Flight Live, Kurt Robinson. How are you doing, Kurt? Hi, Jeff. Good to see you. Um, first of all, thank you so much for coming on the show. You have one, and your father built one of the most iconic names in aviation because it just there's just almost no direct competitor um it's it's really really impressive what you've done um tell me a little bit about uh starting out about with your with your father and um kind of what it was like growing up with that family well my dad has always been interested in aviation since he was a young young kid and going to college <clears throat> I guess today when people think about computers and IT and things and get in that interest, in that time period, if you think the late 40s, early 50s, helicopters were the new and marvelous thing. And he became fascinated with them and decided that he wanted to get a degree in engineering and work to help design and build helicopters. Um, and he was more interested in personal style helicopters than say military or whatever. Um, so when he graduated in 1957 uh, from the University of Washington, he actually accepted a job at Cessna. And a lot of people don't remember that Cessna actually built helicopters for a couple of years and then decided to get out of the market. But he went to Cessna and started working with them. Um, and then he actually went to several companies after that, after they pulled out and, and went to three or four different ones. Um, including like Command and then, of course, at Bell Helicopters in Texas. And then he ended up at Hughes uh, here in Los Angeles. And both at Bell and at Hughes, he had been working on just individually on his own about the possibility of a, a personal helicopter. And so this is like the mid to late 1960s. And he went first to the higher ups at Bell and said, hey, I got a great idea for a small two-place helicopter that we could sell to the commercial market, the civil market. And they said, well, yeah, you know, but the Vietnam War is going on and our military contracts are going nuts. And, you know, actually, we, we're going to just stay that way. 
Well, then when he went to work for Hughes, he proposed the same thing and they, they did the same thing to him. They said, well, it's an interesting idea, but you know, the government is, is where it's at and that's what we're uh, you know, devoted to. And so his epiphany was basically thinking that, you know, I'll bet if somebody just didn't do the commercial work, didn't do the government work, and just sat down and tried to make a low cost helicopter with low overhead, you know, I think we could be like a Cessna. I think we could do something like that. And so he, he, he had an investor at the time, a person that was building a home built, and uh, they got together and the, the gentleman, Gus LaFell, talked Frank into quitting his job at Hughes and just working out of our living room. And at that time, I was a sophomore in, uh, in high school. And so I would come home every day and he, along with a couple engineers, were, were drafting in our living room and, and working on the project. And Gus LaFell actually was retired. Uh, he owned LaFell Tubing and lived in Hawaii and he had a machine shop downstairs. And his biggest thing was, I just want to make all the parts and the tooling if you'll let me, because he loved doing that sort of thing. So they, they had a great arrangement. And you know, from that, the 22 was born. Uh, and I think it first flew, what, in 1975 um, was the first flight, but didn't get certified till 1979. So those were, to call them lean years, yeah, there's dad, um, <laughs> call them lean years, that was an understatement. And of course, actually what you're looking at there is ship two. Ship one actually went in the ocean. Um, and you can imagine how, how um, scary and everything that was. It was a, uh, um, it was during test, flight testing of it, and a gentleman actually calmly radioed back and said, I think I've lost my tail rotor. I need to go in the ocean. You know, I'm going to be landing in the ocean. He set it down. And it took us two days to find the air, aircraft on the, on the ground. And when we pulled it up, uh, you know, the whole thing is, if you can find it, you want to know what's wrong. And Frank looked at it, and he saw the aft casting uh, had cracked, and he went back through all of his, his notes and all the calculations and realized that he'd made, you know, a, an engineering error, so to speak, uh, which to his son was, I found that somewhat humorous. Uh, but he did what Frank is known to do. He didn't just fix it. He made it about five times stronger. He said, "We're gonna re I'm gonna redesign that and I'll make that so that never happens again. And to his credit, it's never happened again. So that's kind of the way he took off and, and got things going. Uh, and then once we certified in 79, we just kind of, uh, just one day at a time, you know, you're just trying to, to get orders in and trying to deliver helicopters and trying to introduce the world to a, a new personal lightweight helicopter. That's, that's so amazing. I love the idea that this was literally a home business. Well, that's all we, all he could afford, right? I mean, he literally quit his job. He mortgaged the house. And um, we were just working. He was working out of the living room. Um, and we had our garage was was the, the shop. He actually had, a, I think, a Sears Craftsman lathe. And he had uh, a couple other hand tools and drills and stuff that he would go and fool around with and then give drawings to Gus who would also to make the parts uh, for him. And, and one of the, the stories that, that I, I love to tell because it's, it's pretty humorous is when, we, when he went to design the tail rotor blades, most engineers would look at that and said, okay, how do you come up with the, the length of the blades and the width and everything? And, and uh, you can go through a lot of mathematical calculations that I'm sure our engineers today could, could design something 
you know, superior or perfect. But at the time, the length of our tail rotor blade was, was dictated by how big our oven was because our <laughs> oven was the bonding mechanism. So literally, we had strain gauges all out of our oven. We had everything uh, sitting there and oh, with all the fixtures and stuff we made. And so all of the first blades for the 22 were all made in our oven at our house. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> that's, that is really, really fantastic. I love that. You know, like one minute, it's getting your prototype blades going, and the next is Thanksgiving dinner. So... Oh yeah, that's it just what what do you need to do, right? You know, and you just you just figure it out, you know. So and and it sounds like you mentioned briefly one of the biggest differences, uh, and certainly one of the big differences between helicopters and fixed wing aircraft, is that helicopters were very primarily rooted in defense in government stuff. They this it wasn't it wasn't the other way around where companies were building fixed-wing aircraft and then trying to get government contracts for bigger things. It's the other way. Correct. Actually, the um, what it, most of the companies would do is they would they would go after military contracts, um, which had high overhead and, and costs and everything, but they would develop a, a helicopter for a military or government application. And then once that was done, if they thought that it also had a civil, um, you know, opportunity, uh, then they would go ahead and market to the civil market. But of course, you have a helicopter that's designed from the ground up for particular attributes, and cost was never one of them. It was, you know, look, I need this to be the fastest helicopter you can you can uh, develop. I need it to have these carrying capabilities, and cost was really not the concern. Uh, especially in a wartime environment. It was, you know, get, get me the best. Well, Frank came at it from a different way and saying, no, if, uh, if I'm going to have somebody that needs to be able to afford it, and he really, his ideal customer was himself because he wanted to have his own personal helicopter. So everything that he designed, he wanted it to be, I don't want to have a lot of maintenance with it. I don't want to have to work on it a lot. So he tried to build reliability into it and dependability. And he got rid of um, a lot of items, you know, on the helicopter. Uh, he had all sealed bearings. He had a lot of different things so that they didn't have to do a lot of maintenance on the helicopter because he didn't want to do a lot of maintenance. And that resulted in a more dependable helicopter. And then of course, with the focus on cost, uh, it, it, it got it down to an affordable range. I think the first time he went out and was advertising it or telling people, he was hoping to develop something that would cost less than $30,000. Now this wow. is 19, think about this is 1975, 1976. But that's what he hoped for. And actually, the first ships that came out, they were under fifty thousand uh, dollars initially. Uh, but then the price, as you know, time goes on, they quickly rise. So. Yeah, but even when you compare 1975-76, when you compare the cost of fixed-wing aircraft at that time, that's cheap. That's oh yeah, yeah, it, it was, and it, it got people's attention, right? And it, and the the thing that made you know, the 22, he was trying to design a small personal helicopter, but he also wanted performance. He wanted, you know, something that was quick and maneuverable, which he designed. And it was not, uh, it was not necessarily an easy helicopter to fly, but it was very dependable and reliable. And being so small and lightweight, it was incredibly quick and nimble. 
um, which means that it really is a lousy trainer. You know, you want to have it, it the uh, had um, high inertia rotors, and it, it it was something that most people you wouldn't expect them to want to learn on. However, when people looked at the cost of learning on an R22, it was half what what it would be on any other helicopter. So that's what people use, and it 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 came very quickly to grow into that market and to to dominate that market. And the other area that it became incredibly successful one is the cattle mustering or cattle herding market, both in Texas and in Australia and New Zealand. Um, because of its quickness and its maneuverability, it just took that market over. And so with any product that you make, if you find that you can build something that is better than any other product out there, that's how you become a success. And that was really our stepping stones to get us started. Wow. Um, did he have a, I mean, obviously his career was focused on helicopters. Um, do you, what, I mean, how far back was he getting involved in, in learning how to fly them and being passionate where he wanted to build something for himself? Well, he learned, to fly, he had a fixed wing license. He bought a small Luscombe back in the late 40s uh, while he was starting to attend college. And he always just a joke. He said, yeah, all my friends went off and went skiing. And I didn't really care much for skiing, but I loved to fly. So I went out and bought a used Luscombe and I learned how to fly. And uh, from there, it just, uh, the bug of flight and aviation really, really grabbed him hard. And like I say, he was focused and really wanted to get involved in helicopters. And so he was studying all the, the manufacturers at that time and, and really wanting to go work for them. And when Cessna was gonna do a, you know, what he thought was a private, helicopter that really got his interest and that's where he wanted to go. Wow. So, I mean, one of the things that you mentioned, of course, is that the challenge on one hand, uh, you're trying to build the most reliable, least expensive, durable, keep, you know, efficient air, uh, aircraft. On the other hand, there, there does seem to be this balance of how do you make something that's nimble, but, also easy to fly and and so what's your transition been as a company for you know, kind of making taking an aircraft that kind of would you know a lot of cars were like that right really sporty really but very challenging and then you've got to take the set secondary focus and say now we need to make this easier to fly what what what's that like well you focus on simplicity and that, and actually, even if you look at the 22, it, it is the model of efficiency and simplicity. Uh, tried to get rid of anything that you didn't need. And, and also remember with the 22, because of, of, of the uh, inertia in the rotor system and being so small, it makes everything quick. When you jump up then into a 44, which is a four-place helicopter and much larger, a lot more inertia in the blades, everything kind of slows down. You go from a small sports car into, into mom and dad's Cadillac, you know, that type mm -hmm. of a transition. And so it it just moves easier and it's actually learning, you know, learning to fly in it is easier, but it's also more expensive because the, the fuel burn and the operating costs are, are, are higher. Uh, so if you're young and everything, then the 22 is great. The one thing that I've heard this, you know, a thousand times, if you learn to fly in a 22, you can fly in any helicopter. And that is so many pilots, if they didn't learn in the military, they all learned on a Robinson. And ones that are 
in you know much larger helicopters now with other brand makers and stuff it is really fun to talk to them about so how'd you get started and you'll hear them all say oh i got started in a robbie you know I, I learned in a 22 and then i transitioned you know got into the turbines and did this and it's really fun now around the world how many people initially started uh in the robinson and they what's nice to me and what i really enjoy is they have a soft spot for our product and you know they know what it can do and and it challenged them but it makes you a better pilot once you get your license Wow, um, you've done a lot of stuff over the years that has to do with training and a focus on that to to make that a little easier for people because obviously we don't want the bar to be too high uh, uh, on a trainer. Um, uh, what have you done and kind of what do you offer in terms of training and, and also maybe what's evolved in the aircraft, even of a 22, to make it a little more manageable? Yeah, we don't do the primary or the beginning training uh, in helicopters. That is done where we have... Uh, but 120 dealers around the world, and we have actually about 460 service centers that maintain them, and many of those are flight schools. So the primary or initiate training is done outside, not at the factory. What we did develop and what Frank worked on in the early 80s, after there was a number of accidents and he could see um, that actually what he found was that the training was all different and instructors were approaching things differently and depending on what their background is how they learn so he wanted to try and make it the same so that instructors when they came and they flew on a 22 that they understood the the difficult maneuvers and the things that pilots had to be aware of and we wanted to show them look if you're going to teach about this this is how we would suggest doing it and from that, it developed our RHC safety course, which initially was just for instructors, but pretty soon all of owners and pilots and everybody wanted to attend the RHC safety course, which is a three and a half day course. It goes on to this day. And it, it literally is uh, uh, two and a half days of, of classroom instruction. Uh, it's no bones. This is you know what we know about the helicopter. Uh, we start out telling people, look, Flying is dangerous. It's like riding a motorcycle, you know, just because you're way up in the air, it doesn't get safer. And you have to, there's three different controls and it takes, it's a skill set and you always have to be aware of it. And so we, we walk through and we show everybody um, what can happen and how to, how to avoid it. And it's been an incredibly successful course through all these years. In fact, almost all the insurance companies, if you take the course and they will give you a, a discount on your insurance. Wow. Um, so take me back to, to obviously, as you mentioned, we were, we were back at the beginning of the company. And then as it moved on, given that your, your age, you were right in the sweet spot to be learning how to fly them and to start kind of getting some stories out there as you were growing up of, of doing a lot of these things. Tell me a few things about what life was like back then when you were either delivering them or, or demoing those, the uh, helicopters. Well, when I, I mean, First, I'll tell you that I went, you know, I went out of high school and then I went down to college and then I actually came home and worked for a couple of years at the company. We we're just getting started, 1979, 1980. And during that time, um, I, you know, we talked about me getting my license. But Frank also knew that I was going back to college to finish my graduate degrees. And he looked at me and he said, you know, flying is a skill. And until you're really willing and ready to dedicate the time each week because it's you know it's like 
playing an instrument. You need to get good at it and you want to stay, um, stay competent at it. Then I think you should wait till you get done with your college degree and then get your license. So it was an agreement we made. Um, and when I came back, then first thing I did was got my license and learned how to fly and, and committed to flying so many hours a week. And then of course that once you get your license and I got my commercial, um, there was a lot of flying jobs at the company to be done. And I was more than happy to, to do a lot of those. And it, it, it is interesting. It, it's really fun to get to know your own product and what people talk about flying, the joys of it, uh, the things that are, are difficult so you can really understand it. And it's a, it's a background that's helped. But in the early years, uh, just going all over the country uh, was just a blast. And it was to go, I mean, I've been to Florida, I've been up into Canada, um, all over uh, the United States flying. And the coolest thing about flying is you get out of the big cities and if you're trapped in a city, you think that the whole world is like this. You go flying and within a short period of time, you're outside of the city, the country is wide open. I don't think people realize how big of a country this is, how many places you can go where you can be totally alone. I mean, you really can be. And if you're flying along the freeways and you see something over a hill that really interests you in a car, you can say, I wonder what's over there. Well, in a helicopter, you say, huh, I wonder what's over there. And you just go over and look and you go over that hill at the top or, and you see what's there. And, and a lot of times you'll suddenly discover a lake or, or something that you never knew was there. And then you go ahead and, and you land and you, you check it out. And it's, it's a lot of fun, you know, so. I, I did that quite a bit and, and flying some of the most fun parts to do is when there's other helicopters involved. You have a flight of two or three helicopters and you all take off and you're, you're flying together, not necessarily in a tight formation, but you're just going together. And of course, you know, everybody just goes, all right, just use frequency one, two, three, four, five, right? Just go on that. We can talk to each other unless other people come on. Uh, and then we'll switch it. And you would, you'd fly along and you'd be talking like they're in the back seat, just and then enjoying the flight and, and sharing what you're seeing and what you're doing. And it was, uh, it, it's a lot of fun. It, uh, anybody that can do it, I, I encourage it wholeheartedly. It is a blast. It's, it's so interesting to me. I mean, uh, you know, stole flying and backcountry flying with fixed wing aircraft has. Be, it really captivated so many minds and and taken on. Uh, uh, such a huge persona and people like watching, you know, all these different cool places to fly and things to do. But helicopters, and especially your helicopters, are are a, a level beyond that uh, because almost nowhere is off limits as long as it's safe to get in and out. Um, you can actually go and see anywhere and, and just put it down. Um, tell me, okay, like some some stories or anything that comes to mind that you may have done in the past where you literally decided but yeah we're just gonna we're just gonna put it down right here <laughs> one um well, one of the first things i'll say is over the years our helicopters have actually um they've been all over the world they have flown around the world um jennifer murray is the first woman to fly around the world in a helicopter she did it in our 44 uh they've been to the north pole they've been to the south pole um, so they are everywhere and it's really, really fun getting the stories of, from people of the different places that they've landed and where they've gone. And, you know, as I've flown, uh, especially early on when it was, it was considered more of a novelty and it was kind of a surprise to people. I, I was, I remember flying with another 
gentlemen, we were going to Dallas, Texas, and we had some headwinds and it was getting kind of late. And we were like, well, we still got another hour and a half or so to go. And we're flying along the interstate. And then all of a sudden we saw this Holiday Inn. It's kind of on the left down there. And we just said, you know, why don't we just go ahead and put it down here? And I hope the owner doesn't mind, but we saw the parking lot in the back was pretty big. And so we stayed away from the cars. And so we set it down, shut it down and walked up to the front desk and told the, the person who happened to be the owner of the hotel, we said, you know, just so you know, we, we, we landed our helicopter in the back of your facility there and we're going to take off tomorrow morning and go. And I hope you're OK with that. And the guy looked at us and he said, really? He goes, show me that. And he goes walking outside and he takes a look at the, at the helicopter. I believe we were in a 22 at the time. And he goes, I'll tell you what, you can, you can leave your helicopter here under one, one condition. And we're like, okay. And he said, I want you to move it to the front on the grassy knoll we have there uh, so everybody can see it. He says, I think that's the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. And I want to see you do it. So I picked the helicopter up. I, it repositioned it to the front and we spent the night there and that gentleman was the happiest guy in the world it was it was it was a fun trip and, and actually when you're traveling cross country one of the things that i can't say enough of and i don't care if you're in america or any foreign country go into some of the smaller airports and some of the families that run them and have them they can't be nicer than people i mean people in aviation are just great and it is, it is so fun to land at some little airport. And I have people just say, here, take my old car in the back if you want to go into town, do whatever. They're, they're just great. And it, it is really, it, it, it warms your heart to see how some people are in America when you get away from the, the hustle and bustle and competitiveness of the city. And it, it, it's great. It's really fun. Yeah, you know, um, as you may have seen at the beginning of the show, when I was talking about Air, Airlink Express down in Jamaica, it any time that that you can incorporate that even in regular travel you're taking an airline somewhere you're doing something if if you see that which is often at the same airport you see like the helicopter tour or something like that it's a different experience i think when you go up to them and you say hey you know i'm a pilot and i yeah i want to take want to sign up for one of the rides with you or something there's this camaraderie and you're helping you're helping to support them you're getting this experience uh you get usually get a different one when they when you tell them you're you're kind of part of the general aviation community and it, it's just such a wonderful thing to always add i love adding that no matter where i go one of the nice things you know when you go into a strange city and when i've traveled abroad to the dealers and everything that first thing they offer me is always a helicopter ride to see the city but when you see something from the air it's kind of like Google Maps, right? And then once you're on the ground and then you're driving around, you're like, oh, I get it. Now I know where we are. And it, it is weird. It just gives you a better sense of the city. But when you do tours, it, it's great. But also one of the beauties of a helicopter is you don't have to stay on the tour, right? You can say, let's go over there or let's go somewhere different and explore. And it, being able to explore in a helicopter, there's nothing like it. So... I've heard you describe helicopters and helicopter flying as kind of like the last wild west of, of what you can do. Tell me a little bit about that, where we are today and that you can still do some of that. So many of the people that, that own our helicopters and fly them, and obviously we do cattle mustering, They're, they are in so many different ranches and, and on farms and all around the world. And whenever we get together, it's a different conventions, HAI, whatever, and you meet these people 
really the best way to describe them. It is like the last bastion of cowboys. There, there is an element of skill and danger involved with flying, and it just attracts a, a great group of people. Um, and it, both men and women, uh, some of the best pilots I've ever met are, are women. Um, and I, I really enjoy uh, flying with them and talking with them. Just anybody that has a love of aviation, um, it's just great. And you, you really do like to get into it. And they are, they're just good people. They really are. Well, and, and I will say, as a as a, as a boy that does did not grow up on a ranch, cattle mustering. Tell me about like helicopters used for that, and and some of the other kind of more interesting things that you've had customers use the helicopters for. <laughs> well, cattle mustering is interesting because I mean, think of it as a horse um, that you know you're trying to move the cattle around. Well, you can do it a lot more efficiently. Uh, with a small light helicopter like the R-22. And what's interesting is if I go out to a farm and I place a, a 22, a 44, and a, 60, a turbine helicopter, and I look at somebody and say, I need you to go, you know, muster cattle. You take whatever helicopter you want, right? I'll pay it. Whatever. They will always go to a 22 because of its quickness, its nimbleness, and if you watch some of these pilots and how skilled they are, they just dance around that cattle and they can move them around. And with a piston engine, you know, when you pull in the throttle, that power is there instantly. Whereas, you know, if you have a turbine helicopter and you pull in, you have that that little slight lag as it spools up. So actually, the the lighter, cheaper uh, 22 does that particular job better than a turbine helicopter. Now, mm -hmm. there's other other things that you want to do with a turbine, you can have altitude performance. Obviously, you can get larger, and so you can get you can get faster in speed. Where it's nice to have have a turbine, but each helicopter has its own benefits and its own you know promises type of thing. Wow, that uh, and and I mean, what I mean, are, are there other types of things that you've you've seen that you were surprised when people told you they were doing with the helicopter? <laughs> Uh, some of which I can't talk about, but yeah, um, well, just actually the, the, the coolest thing is some of the things I, I mentioned just briefly, the fact that we've had people, a lot more than one person has flown to the North Pole in our helicopters. And that, I mean, you talk about want, needing something that's reliable, you know, and that's dependable, uh, that type of adventure and that type of exploring or traveling around the world going into areas that when you land and turn off that helicopter, uh, particular if I go back to like the 90s when, you know, we didn't have cell phones. So when you turned off that helicopter, if that did, thing didn't start, you were in a whole world of hurt. Um, and those type of adventures are just just phenomenal. And the things that people have told me and where they've gone and some of this, um, the wildlife in, in Africa, and some of the things that they've done there for for animal protection uh, that, you know, protecting elephants and rhinos and what have you. It's just amazing what they what they do uh, with the helicopters and then just the countries themselves. And, you know, unfortunately, we're in a, a conflict with with Russia right now. But it was a very popular place for the helicopters. There was a lot of areas where people where people went and. Um, you know, China, I mean, you start naming a country and there's areas that if you have a helicopter, it just turns it into a whole different experience. That, that certainly makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, I'm also uh, amazed at how a lot of people don't realize 
how the pilot crisis itself of, of lack of pilots has really uh, exacerbated what happens in the helicopter world. We were uh, when we met uh, a couple when we were out uh, on our trip that was talking about you you know their company of um, of medical uh, transportation and that they just can't find helicopter pilots. They, it's just very very difficult. And how many scholarships are available? Mm -hmm. uh, for, for people interested in doing it by organizations, especially if you happen to be uh, uh, a woman looking to do it or anything like that, there's so many organizations that are uh, out there offering training because we just need to fill these spots with whoever whoever is, is qualified and can take it. And we yeah, need to get right now is interested. a great time. If you want to get involved in flying or you have an interest in aviation, uh, you're absolutely right. There are people that are really looking hard for pilots and, and they everybody steals from each other. Um, and flight schools are, are, you know, they're booming and they need instructors. And so it, it is, I, I can't think of it. it's a great industry to get involved in um, and to grow. And of course, a lot of those people that started out as students, they now own own a dealership and they, they do all things flying and, and it's great. And one thing I, I will say, uh, uh, particularly about women is remember in the helicopter industry, uh, size and weight matters. And tending, if you tend to be a little shorter and a little bit lighter, that's a good thing in helicopters because you have a maximum gross weight and so you can carry more. Um, and it's, it's one of the nice things uh, that you have in helicopters, it's an advantage for a person who's who's mid-size or slightly smaller. Um, that actually works for you very well when you do tour operations and other things in helicopters. Yeah, you can't mess around with gross weight in a helicopter. Oh yeah, no, no. It, it's so. it's not like uh, uh, you know saying you're just going to fudge it in a fixed wing plane and go a little faster, which no one should. But I mean, you really can't get away with it in a helicopter. No, flying has to be and always should be taken very seriously. And uh, just because you have 5,000 hours or 10,000 hours, the most important flight is the next one. And it doesn't, just because you've done it, you know, a thousand times before, it doesn't make it any easier or any safer. You have to have the same respect and, and fo follow it the same way when you when you fly. And too many accidents we see is people get complacent or, or um you know, they're not watching what they're doing. One of the things I, I had seen and read that just bothers me is that wire strikes, which is one of the most common things in aviation and helicopters, is that they said that over 60% of the wire strikes that occurred, the pilot knows the wires there. Mm. You just get distracted, you get complacent, you're not thinking about it. And that's that's, you know, the best thing I can tell people. You need to always be attentive and you know, every flight you have to give it your your on. But that also makes it what's interesting and fun and enjoyable to be a pilot is the skill level and uh, the fact that when you're flying, you don't think about anything else but flying. And it's it's yeah. really the nicest thing in the world. Let's let's talk about that for a minute when we, when it comes to technology. Um, uh, wire strikes are are something that you don't think about as much in fixed wings, but it's very primary in rotorcraft and um, you know, I, I started in the avionics business with a focus since we always did synthetic vision development and, and big part of that was can we put wire, you know, can we put the technology into synthetic vision, see that, map it out. What 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 have you guys been involved in to, to help or, or anything having to do with wire strikes? Because that's that seems to be the big the big issue. 
There is. I mean, the, the advancement and development and technology that's come along in aviation is is just fantastic. Um, what it was in the 80s compared to what it is now with the uh, with the autopilots, the SAS systems, where they can mark and, and identify wires, uh, it, it's it really has come a long way. Uh, you know, now literally with an autopilot um, or a SAS system, I can take a helicopter and actually take my hands off the controls. Um, which is, you know, something you want to keep on there, but it, it shows the level of, of of how it's made it simpler and easier to fly. But you still have to pay attention. You still have to be very much cognizant of what you're doing as you fly along. But the helicopters today, I mean, just GPS, which now everybody takes for granted in your car. Um, but think about it when, you know, 20, 30 years ago, before that was available, uh, you had a map laid out beside you, and you're you're looking at the map, going, "Well, I think that road down there is the one that's on this map." And you know, I'm not sure. You call into a tower, and you would say, uh, approximately, you know, 10 miles southeast on the on the such and such freeway, tra transitioning northbound, and you were guessing. But now, when you have with GPS, when you call into a tower and you say, "I am 3.4 miles southeast." You are 3.4 miles southeast. There's no question about it, and it's it's a wonderful thing for a pilot. It gives you you know a warm and comfortable feeling as you fly, and it allows you instead of trying to look at instruments and other things to fly, it allows you to keep your eyes outside, be looking for birds, wires, what have you, and mm -hmm. that you know translates into a to a safer flight. Wow, and and with technology, as we mentioned at the beginning of the show, you've been uh, very involved in adding things like like autopilots, as you mentioned. Um, I think a lot of people don't realize how how little helicopter flying in general is done, kind of IFR or or in the in that world, and and with autopilots, that's a lot more recent. Even when I've talked to folks that fly S seventy sixes, you know, huge huge helicopters. They don't do a lot with with things that now, are either you want to be PFR. You want to see it. And helicopters, when they fly, they can go special, meaning I can stay clear of the clouds and I can fly in these conditions. But you're, you know, that balance and and making certain that you're you're flying uh, properly. You really do need to be you know, VFR. The the one of the goals of the industry is to get to a single engine IFR helicopter and. I think that is coming along and that will happen, but that obviously is gonna require a SAS system, an autopilot that is helping you fly in those conditions. Um, and then it's getting the reliability up there, which is every day we're getting closer and closer. Can you help people understand what is a SAS system? Um, th that is a, in essence an autopilot. It's, uh, um, uh, what you would call it? I'm gapping on the words, but it is it allows the helicopter with gyros to to stabilize and and uh, using the instruments on board the helicopter, it keeps it straight and level for you. And you can literally dial in a turn. You can um, you can dictate a, an altitude so that it it will it will maintain the stability of the helicopter with the gyros that are on board. Um, I, I find an autopilot puts it the next step forward where you can actually pick a destination. You can go, you know, tell it where you want to go or in a bank and then it will, it will perform those maneuvers for you. Well, I, I, um, I find it, it, you know, interesting and, and fascinating that 
with single engine air, you know, regular fixed wing aircraft, there's no issue. We, we always think about flying I, IFR in it, but that helicopters are limited and the FAA hasn't changed that when it comes to a single engine, that they require twin engine to do that. And yet your R-66 has over a million flight hours on it without a single engine failure. That's a, that's a lot of flight hours to, to restrict everybody from IFR. Uh, you're preaching to the choir, <laughs> but it's, you know, it, it is the, uh, uh, the reliability is something we're very proud of. I know Rolls-Royce is extremely proud of it. And, and the piston engines, uh, those are just as reliable. And uh, Frank did something unusual when he designed the 22 and the 44 to get reliability is he derated the engine, meaning that when you, because you, you tend to fly a helicopter, you set it at like full throttle or max throttle. Um, so that you hover and use the power, you don't really change throttle uh, settings much. But what he did is he made it so that you're not flying at the maximum, you're flying less than that. And that gave you power as you climbed up in altitude, it allowed you to, uh, to have reserves. Um, and then also because now the engine wasn't working as hard, it allowed us to have more time between overhauls and to extend the life of the, the engine and the, the airframe uh, so that you could, you could fly longer. Yeah, and I know that you're a big proponent of the reliability of piston engines, which usually, and, and, and you would think that Robinson with the R22, the 44, and then the Turbine 66, you would think that you're so well positioned to be pushing folks in that direction and using the word reliability, but, but that's not actually the case. You're, you're a strong supporter of piston reliability. Tell me more about that. Oh, absolutely. Um, it, it, again, it kind of goes back to what we say in the beginning. You, you want to pick the aircraft that performs the job that you need to do uh, the best and that can do it economically. And so like a lot of tour operations, things on 44 is perfect um, for those type of, of jobs at 22, uh, learning how to fly. Um, when, again, we talk about cattle mustering, where it's the best aircraft to perform that particular type of, of application. Uh, and doing spray work. The 44 and actually the 66 works pretty well on that one, but anything low to the ground, uh, the piston engine uh, is turned out to be in the Lycoming, the 0540 and the 0360 are incredibly dependable um, engines. And they, they have a low fuel burn, a low uh, operating cost. So they make them the right engine for, for that job. And it has been something that, that in the industry, Early on in the early 60s, the military wanted to go to turbines because they believed that they were more reliable. Well, we kind of came back and said, it kind of depends on how they're maintained, how they're using, and you can design one that will be extremely dependable. And that's what we did with both the, the, uh, the R22 and the 44. Wow, I mean, yeah, the, the reliability obviously is, is, is dramatic. Um, tell me a little bit more about the utility that, that you've done. You mentioned spraying. Um, I know uh, back in 2018, you guys added a cargo hook, which isn't something that you, little, you, you think about generally with, uh, with Robinson, and yet it, they're pretty cool to see that happening. You've done things with pop-out floats. Tell me, tell me about all the, all the different things people add. There's various applications. We have a float ship for flying over water. Uh, we obviously have a cargo ship. We, and, um, Early on, I think somebody developed a cargo hook for the 22, but being a very small helicopter, you're not going to carry that much. <laughs> you got to carry your lunch. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, yeah, he couldn't carry a lot, but they're little, a little small Bambi bucket. Um, but the 44 has that, and obviously the 66 has can carry considerably more. Uh, but then also Ag Sprain has turned out to be a, a very good use of both the 44 and the 66. Um, we also have police helicopters that have been developed that have the FLIR on the nose and the searchlight, and those are used um, by a lot of municipalities. Uh, and then we have the um, also the news copters. And actually on the police helicopters, I guess Polk County sheriffs in uh, um, Florida, they have uh, several of our, our 66s, and they were telling us that literally for the cost that it, it was costing them to operate a larger um, turbine helicopter, uh, they can actually run three of ours for the same price. And wow. so when municipalities and cities look at what they're doing and they become cost conscious, um, then all of a sudden it falls into and becomes a perfect application for what we do. That, I mean, I was gonna ask that, like whether you have seen a lot of transition from the classic kind of like Jet Ranger, Jet Star, A-Stars, things like that, that people are using that you think of with news helicopters or police and and starting to see a lot of it transition over to Robinson helicopters for the, the efficiency and, and economics. We do, and we have seen that. And it's, uh, um, it really, again, it comes down to the mission that, that needs to be performed and how many, how many people need to be on board and, and what type of equipment, whether it's a FLIR or a camera system. Uh, the news copter industry is something that has grown dramatically and you never see us advertise it, but all the TV stations, there's all around the United States and Brazil and around the world. We actually sell quite a few of them uh, because they are very cost efficient and they, mm -hmm. you know, you get cameras on there that can do like, you know, 32x with a 2x extender so they can go 64x it's amazing the digital images that they can that they can take uh and you have 4k cameras and i mean it's just amazing what we've seen them develop into wow um robinson helicopters have a very unique look right you can from and it, it never it doesn't seem to have changed from the 22 and just scaled up through the 44 and the 66 and um and it's different than than what you see. I think other turbine helicopters have, have kind of tried to emulate with almost trying to understand what the form versus function is on those. Is that something that you've you've ever played with or or looked at or or like changing? Frank actually Frank studied that very heavily um, when actually the McCulloch autogyro, the plug that was used on the twenty two. Frank got it from uh, the old man McCulloch or whatever. That's how he used to refer to him. He, he let him have that plug when they decided to get out of helicopters. And Frank had been very intense on trying to find the most efficient aerodynamic design that he could, particularly when you're trying to design a small lightweight helicopter like the 22. Well, once you come up with that shape, as you start to get bigger, we you just kind of build off of that. So it does start to have a very... Uh, very distinctive styling and design, but it's incredibly efficient. It's kind of like a Porsche 911, right? I mean, once they got that design and you look at the ones they have now, there's a lot of, you know, it, it's evolved, but it still has that aerodynamic shape. And that's what we found with the, uh, the 22 and the 44. And some of the things that are happening now that you see, and you see people talking about EVTOLs and, uh, you know, drone-like things, 
there a lot of them are using 22s and 44s because of the efficiency because it doesn't take a lot of power and they can do the job really well so they start with our aircraft and then try and develop something else and um that's you know that's flattering to say the least i i can i can imagine and uh, uh i mean it just it just makes perfect sense you go with efficiency and then you keep building building on that um we we've certainly had quite a few people chime in asking questions about whether you you know what level of pressure you've gotten from the experimental market over the years um of uh, 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 folks because obviously there's there's a little bit of a footprint there for some people have played with it but but not much we love the experimental market oshkosh and the people there there there's that's where you find some of the the most unique and innovative ideas and mm -hmm. a lot of times some of the things that we've incorporated into the aircraft they start out in you know whether it's avionics or some other things you can see it in the experimental aircraft category and then it, it develops up. But from the early on, Frank wanted to make certain that he had a certificated aircraft because with experimental, you are limited in where you can fly and who you can carry. And you know, there's a lot of restrictions, but if it's a, a, a certified aircraft, then you can, you, know, it, you can take passengers and you can go all over the United States or, or other countries or whatever, whereas in a, uh, uh, a kid helicopter models, there are definite restrictions and things that that apply to you. And he just liked the level of, uh, um, I don't know, detail and the requirements that it would take to give you a, a, a more reliable, dependable helicopter. That makes perfect sense. So we've always been sense. in the commercial market or in the certified market and really haven't uh, looked at or, or thought about playing in the experimental market. Um, I'm curious about your thoughts on the whole urban air mobility trend, right? Because when I think of, you know, everybody's been talking about all the different ways of urban air mobility and what's going to happen with these large automated uh, or even piloted uh, aircraft. Um, but the reality is helicopters do that. Um, and, and, and perhaps there's going to be an efficiency growth in it, but what are your thoughts on, on this future of, of urban air mobility? And well, I think there's a huge market for it. And I think, I mean, and you're right, we, we are positioned perfectly to be in it. We do see our helicopters used in some applications. The biggest thing is noise um, and traveling in, you know, if you go into an area and it's really is designating and finding an area where you minimize the noise impact and there's things that you can do and so things that we're always working on our design to make the helicopters uh, you know quieter and to fly neighborly and get into areas where where they're used a lot um, some of this the EV tall or the electric vehicles um, they some of them coming along with more rotors they are a little bit quieter but that also raises the cost and it's really the battery technology that I I am certain it will it will evolve and come about. I just think that a lot of people are a little bit premature on the current capabilities, because remember a, a helicopter is really flying at max power, so it's a especially in a hover, it has a high drain on the batteries. And most of the EV tolls that you see now, they've kind of drifted away from the straight helicopter concept to almost like a tilt rotor, where right. they get you up and then get you out, so they can transition and use the the wing of the aircraft to support lift and to, to be able to reduce power. Um, but I think the days will come, but it's probably still a ways off. And when it does, 
we'll be right there. And it's, it's something that we monitor carefully and we are, uh, we put our toe in the water in various areas and we wanna keep supporting it and look forward to when the technology is available to, to, to go in that direction. Just like we, we weren't always a piston helicopter company, then we became a turbine. And now if, if eVTOL, when the right power plant evolves and, and is here, then we'll put it in our aircraft. Is there anything uh, at, anything at all you can tease us with that's happening? I mean, we've got 22, 44, 66, I'm sure the next logical 88 maybe, or anything else on the horizon? Well, we're always, we, you know what, we study the industry. We, we get so tremendous feedback. You talked about the fact that we have over 13,000 aircraft. We actually have over 13,800. I think by the end of this year, we're going to break that 14,000 mark. Uh, flying around the world, we get tremendous feedback and desires and wants from people. Uh, the one thing I can tell you is we probably won't go smaller. I don't think you'll ever see anything smaller than the 22. Um, <laughs> but obviously, and we look to fill a marketplace or a gap. We don't want to build a Me Too product, never have. Uh, and each of our aircraft that we designed were designed, hopefully, to go into a void in the industry. Uh, where people didn't have something available and we've been able to find that that market. And so as we look to something like an 88, um, it will likely be larger, not smaller. Um, and it's something that we're looking at. But again, we go back to we need efficiency. We need to find the right power plant. We need to look at cost. And then we, we study the jobs and things that it can do and do well. And so we are working on those. Um, you know, I, I tease you a little bit with uh, the single engine IFR. That is something we've been working on for years and years. And as it develops, that's something that would be a holy grail because that would allow you to, um, you know, to make a reservation and say, I want to go from Torrance to Van Nuys next Thursday. Well, if you come into Torrance next Thursday and it's foggy, we're not going anywhere, right? And whereas it, airlines, they fly IFR all the time. They just assume it, even on a uh, a bright and sunny day. They know they can do that flight. So to get to that point with helicopters would be a huge opportunity and allow that eVTOL and that landing in cities because then you can schedule and plan on it. And so that's an area that I think development as the years go by, um, that, that hurdle will be, will be crossed. That makes a lot of sense. And then of course, as you mentioned, by going bigger, uh, that, that gap uh, seems to be you know, real transportation, oil platforms, getting back and forth, going to different things where your goal is to load as many people in the trip efficiently as you can. Um, that that seems to be the, an opportunity there. Am I, am I off base? No, you're right on. And actually, I mean, what our strength is, is with our factory here, and we do, we haven't even gone into manufacturing, which is actually a very fun area, but we really do look to reduce costs. We bring things in-house. Back in the 90s when everybody was outsourcing, we were doing just the opposite. We were trying to bring it in-house, not because we necessarily saved money, but we could do two things. One, we could do our own scheduling, uh, and then two, we could ensure the quality of the product by building it in-house. So we have invested millions of dollars in very complicated, very high-end machining equipment so that we can uh, we could do that. So. I'm going to show a pic picture of that facility because I want to make sure that uh, that that we get to that. And um, that's that is not a small building. <laughs> oh yeah, 600,000 square feet. Um, and 
I'm going to run into a problem here because I'm getting a low battery on my my okay. laptop. We're at the end of the uh, we're at the end of the hour anyway. But um, I just like to thank you so much for taking time out of your evening to join us here on on the show. It really is a a wonderful, wonderful both family and and American business success story. And I love that you've kept the manufacturing in house. You've done everything there, and you've truly changed an industry. And I really look forward to seeing your uh, your your handprint on on what happens to uh, to the future of transportation. Well, thank you. I've really enjoyed being on your show, and and hopefully we'll see more people uh, that'll will take up flying because it is a fabulous industry. Absolutely. Well, have a wonderful evening, Kurt, and thanks for joining us here on Social Play Live. Thank you very much, Jeff. Take care. And thanks to you for joining us this evening and taking time out of your evening to join us here on Social Flight Live and for everything that you do to support general aviation. Really do appreciate it and uh, and would love to hear your own personal stories of what you do while traveling and how to experience general aviation in every way possible. Now, we will be back next Tuesday, February 20th at 8 p.m. with the incredible Kenny G. He is a musician and pilot of a Haviland Beaver, has some fantastic stories, cannot wait to have uh, him join us here on the show and share those stories with you. Then on Thursday, February 27th, we continue our Vertical Aviation Series with Congressional Medal of Honor winner Major General Patrick Brady. Uh, his uh, his stories, if you want to look him up, is absolutely unbelievable of flying uh, in Vietnam and uh, doing helicopter dust-off missions there and rescue missions. And then on Tuesday, March 5th at 8 p.m. Eastern, as always, aerobatic helicopter pilot Chuck Aaron will be here on the show. Until next time, I'm Jeff Simon for Social Flight. Blue skies.